Hi, uh, this is Nicholas Forrest. I'm here in the beautiful uh, Blackheath. Is it, would you call this a suburb or a village or a region? It's a village. It's a, it's a, a village? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little village, you know, in the Blue, in the Blue Mountains. Mountains. In north of Sydney, and I'm here with uh, Stefan Simchevitz. I'm in the living room. In the living room with a beautiful view, an incredible overlooking the Megalong vista. Valley. Yep, overlooking the valley. It's absolutely the, glorious. The Megalong, which is the Megalong. I love that word, Megalong. You could definitely frame this and uh, sit and look at it for a long time. Yeah, it's beautiful. Clowns. Yeah. So you've had this, and you've had this house for four years, right? Four years. Yeah. Very peaceful. It's where I come to think. It's where you come to think. So to get away from your hectic life in in LA, would you call it a hectic life, or I, I, try to avoid having a hectic life? It's, it's hectic. It's, un, it's unavoidably hectic. I try to walk all the time to to take the hecticness out. But here I can walk, and it's just the bush, and there's you know it's birds and little critters everywhere, and just somehow detached from the world. But you are able to still continue what you do. You still continue yeah, you're to do. You're, you're connected, but you're, you're very distanced. So you're connected, but you're very far away from everything. And mm. it gives this sort of sense of peace, sense of, um, you know, separation that lets you see things with some clarity. Clarity is, is uh, one of the principles of Italo Calvino's Six Memos one of my favorite ones because it's it's a very difficult thing to maintain sort of a clear observation of how things actually work and function and i think it's very important for me and what i do to have some sense of clarity to sort of see through the noise uh, to hear through the noise and to take action through the noise uh, increasingly hard thing to do um, today yeah, so I mean, the fact that you're able to actually still function in in your business pursuits while you're at out here in kind of a remote area is, I suppose, something that a lot of a lot of dealers wouldn't, or a lot of people in the art world who are involved with dealing dealing art would would not be able to do. But you've got a pretty unique perspective and a pretty unique model of of um, of dealing of interacting with artists of your relationship with them. Um, so how does that work and how does then, you know, how does that enable you to then be sort of detached from, I suppose, the I commercialism think, of I, the art world? I, I, I think for me, business is or has become a sort of a conceptual practice. So I think the basics of business and the basics of economics are fundamentally social science. They're, they're sort of basic conditions and laws of good business um, and effective business and I think you sort of learn them and then they become second nature and then you evolve them um, and you sort of question uh, especially in the art business which which has a sort of a, a very specific code of doing business that, that isn't necessarily attached to business but it's sort of a, a code that the art business adopts for itself and I suppose all businesses have that and for me, it's sort of become a conceptual, a conceptual practice in questioning which of those codes is effective and which is ineffective, which is 
which is positive and which is negative. And uh, it's very important for me to conceptualize the relationship between cultural production, which is a fancy word for artists who make art, and cultural distribution, which is a fancy word for, you know, how do you sell art and who buys it and how does it get out there to be seen. Um, but I'm very interested in the narrative and the progression of this relationship between cultural production and cultural distribution and the steps in between financing cultural production, financing cultural distribution, and really trying to come up with a framework and a model that is um, both profitable for myself, for our business, and for the artists who we work with. And it requires a lot of tweaking because there are a lot of forces at play, both competitive, um, in both competitive in, in the competitive business environment, but also competitive in the sense that uh, some of the practices that 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 we have established are not are not necessarily accepted widely or broadly by the art industry, um, and and you know some people find it weird. You know, I mean, we, we, our focus is primarily on financing the artist. Um, it really begins in the studio. It begins in making sure that the factory of the artist has enough working capital to sustain itself over a long period of time and has enough working capital to realize the visions and, and, and goals of the artists who run their own factories, as opposed to um, focusing on, the, on, on, on the, the storefront, which is the gallery or the exhibition space. Um, we feel if, if the product can be right, the art can be right, the artist can be in a position where they, they can produce at at their at their optimum creative capacity, then you've you really won the game there and then, and distribution really becomes uh, sort of an automatic process from there. Sort of once you have the product right, you know, essentially the customer finds you. So I suppose it's essentially a, a form of or a way of democratizing the art world in I mean, a sort of. D democracy is a democratization and democracy are very tricky word, words uh, when you when you deal with the art industry because art is expensive for the majority of people so the idea that democratization is a a good moral impulse is not necessarily uh, is not necessarily factual because if you really, broadly speaking, think about the democratization of art, it's sort of impossible. It really is um, a, a, something that, for the most part, is something enjoyed by, practiced by, and consumed by elites. When you when you look on sort of a global perspective, you look at large populations. Um, but I think that those elite populations have become homogenized and extremely underserved and have abrogated their responsibility as elites to lead and set agendas and ideas that are meaningful. I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm a student of philosophy, but I have a great interest in philosophy. And mm. the ancient Greeks basically believed that a man of leisure would spend his time 
in study. So leisure time was associated with, with being studious, with learning, with thinking, with, with coming up with ideas. Not today, how we think of leisure time. We, you know, we, we have leisure time, we can, we can go to Bali or, or some fancy resort and go snorkeling. Leisure time for the ancient Greeks was, was something that freed man up for study, for thought, for thinking. And the elites, unfortunately, have, have, have sort of, today, their, their utility of leisure time is essentially no longer a practice, for, for the most part, of thinking, but it's a practice of, you know, snorkeling, scuba diving, partying, drinking, and relaxing. And I think, I, I think those people who are fortunate enough to be prosperous should really take that time to to think to study to read to 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 rebuild the scaffold for a world in which we 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 actually need uh, need to sort of be thoughtful and think things through and and take in the information but analyze it question where it's coming from question its authentic authenticity its authority uh, somehow separate the noise from from what's really going on and this is becoming increasingly hard to do as as sort of social media bifurcates us into into extreme camps of of thinking and and speaking and actions so i suppose what so would you say that what you're doing is more about destabilizing and diluting the the power structure structures and, and hierarchies that currently uh, dictate the trajectory of the art world and making it I think I think the structures are very important. Um, I think the structures are like pyramids in ancient Greece, but around the pyramids and under the pyramids, if you excavate the land, there are areas undiscovered that link the pyramids together, secret tunnels and 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 other artifacts that have been buried by time. I think. We have to excavate the environment so that we don't destroy the power structures because in destruction you you debase yourself of the authority moral authority and also practical requirements to maintain hard built and hard won established enterprises that are legitimate in supporting culture but you really want to excavate new ones uh, encourage new ones to be built and then figure out how to integrate them with the existing hierarchies and somehow figure out a way to, 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 to build bridges with many of the existing hierarchies and, and thinking and you do that too as you either challenge them or you, you, or you reach your hand out to them you see if they'll collaborate you try to educate them as to what you're doing you try to reach out it's difficult because there is a lot of reticence and friction but I think it's, it's to respect everything that's been built and to utilize efficiently the infrastructure that's been built. It's, it's not about de demolishing or about um, uh, devaluing or it, it's, it's, it's about integrating uh, systems with new systems um, so you can maximize the potential of, of um, of, of what needs to be done and, and, and we, we're, we're sort of living in an age where culture is under attack 
from all sides. And, and the preservation of culture is critical to, uh, I think, the success of, 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 our, of our sort of humanitarian civilization, basically. So in an ideal art world, if, if you were to achieve all your objectives and, and see all your wishes for the art world come true, what would it look like? How would the mechanics and structures look? And how would that differ from what it is today? I think it would look much, I would, I think it would look very much like this, like the slow food movement in Europe, where you have a lot of, of, uh, producers of, of, of good food, good quality food, you know, organic, green, small producers integrated in distribution systems that that are sort of marketed to broad audiences so people can have a lot more individual unique experiences that are very high quality as opposed to the same experience that is homogenized and high quality so you know so i i think you can make an analogy of eating a spaghetti with tomato sauce and you can go from milan to turin to pienza to piacenza to naples to you know all over italy and you can have a very simple dish a spaghetti with tomato sauce and you can have an experience that is sublime and uniquely vastly different with two ingredients three ingredients if you add cheese you know on top you know whether you put pecorino pomeriggiano and the pasta and that diversity of experience which is unified by a consistent quality across regions I think if we could bring that to the art world, um, that would be very interesting, as opposed to everyone's eating the same very good spaghetti with tomato sauce, and it's the same one all over the world. And it would be a world that really encourages uh, and enables many more people to collect um, and engage with art, because they wouldn't feel alienated if they weren't able to have access to the same spaghetti, essentially, to use a pretty simplified analogy yeah definitely that's um that certainly makes sense so i think so my spaghetti of, tomato sauce analogy <laughs> it's a good one up, i like it never came up with it that sounds good to me so it, it, in part it's about the economics of scale do you think that's a big part of it's it it's about the economics of of scaling individual experiences so so i think i think in in the restaurant in the food business if you look at farm to table which is this idea of fresh produce brought to the table at once. You know, it, it originally began as quite a small movement, but farm to table has actually scaled into, into a very large and enterprising mechanism of, of distributing a, a restaurant experience or food experience. Um, and, and they did it by creating sort of a unified umbrella for a set of underlying principles, which were fresh food, organic farmers, locally grown, um, brought to you fresh to the table so i think i think you can do it by by conceiving a, a, a set of principles but you have to really open things up uh, for that you 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 have to open up the institutions who really seem to do the same shows at the same time you know you have a successful show and of a young artist and then sort of they're hot for a few years and every museum's lined up to do that show it's like and they're from the same set of set of galleries. So we have to we have to encourage uh, institutions and and galleries uh, and galleries. It's it's Nicholas's next interview. Yeah. <laughs> it's very in demand. Yeah, you, you have to you have to encourage 
institutions to take more risk, basically, to, to accept failure, to accept the fact that they don't have to just show what is going to be historically important. And if they do show things that, that are not going to be historically important, that not every institution, institution alongside them fails in showing the wrong artists. So a lot more experimentation, a lot more small shows, a, a lot more speed, essentially, um, I think should happen. <clears throat> yeah, okay. That, uh, that definitely makes sense. Now, you, you're, the model that you uh, favour in terms of dealing with artists and, and, and also uh, dealing with collectors is one that's very, it's very much based on morals, ethics, on respect and on trust as well. So why do you think um, more people don't agree with your method of, of working? Why do you think more people don't, well, why do you think people don't like it? There seems to be, there seems to be some sort of... Um, I, think people, I think people don't like things they don't understand. They don't like things they don't feel comfortable with. It's, it's, I don't have a single contract with an artist I'm, I work with. It's, mm. I, and I don't, I don't want them. I, I believe that things should be should work until they work. Uh, I, I think people are very distrustful of things that they haven't seen before. Um, they're like, what is that? I haven't seen that before. That's a strange thing. Um, Do you think in some way they perhaps feel themselves threatened by the success that you're experiencing? With I, don't, such I a... don't know if it's success. I don't. I don't think it's threatened by success. I, I don't think they're threatened. I don't. Think, I don't. Think, I don't. I don't even know if I'm that successful, to be honest with you. I, you know. I, I. I just think they're threatened of experiencing something that they haven't seen before, that they're not used to. It's the. It, it's. It's. It, you know. It's the same threat when you come here and you see a giant harmless hairy spider called a huntsman and and you see it and you fear it because it's big it's hairy and it's ugly but it's not dangerous at all it's it's one of the friendliest spiders in the world and it doesn't bite people and it's not poisonous it's just you don't know what it is so you your reaction is oh i i, I i'm scared i i don't think it's i don't even think it's like an envy or 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 a, you know People have this sort of illusion of success. Larry Gagosian's successful. David Zwerner's successful. You know, I'm a guy just building a, a business supporting young artists, you know, which is very difficult, very challenging. Um, it's not that, it's, it's really not like that big a deal. It's, I, think, I, 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 I think, again, it's like a cliche to say they're envious of success. I think there are a lot more successful people in the world. There certainly are. I think it's just more a fear of um, not understanding how it works. And oftentimes people say, how does it work with you? And I'm like, very simply. And they're like, well, we don't understand. I'm like, you know, because they've been taught these cliches of how the art business works that are really cliches. And, and they, they're sort of unable to sort of analyze the business economics of why those cliches are cliched. Very traditional structure of distribution in the post-war world. The gallery takes your work on consignment. If they sell it, they give you 50%. If they don't sell it, they return the goods to you. 
and and that's it and if they sell it well then they do another show and if they sell it really well they they take you to an art fair and if they sell it really well they try to take you to every art fair and if they sell it really really well they publish a book and take you to more art fairs and if they don't sell it at all they drop you as an artist and they don't wait for 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 you to make art you know well some don't drop you as an artist it's untrue but today more so than ever if you don't sell you get dropped as an artist because the expenses of art fairs and galleries are so expensive in the 50s and 60s i think it was in 70s it was much different you could costs were lower a lot of galleries you know great galleries you know spent a lot of time representing artists they never sold work for, for over long periods of time but i think now it's very different the market the costs are too expensive and too competitive so you need to come up with some kind of solution for how do you support artists in this particular moment of time where things are so sped up so what do you think is the primary reasons that the art world is not willing to adapt to the model that you are trying to initiate an institute I, what's I, well I, th I think it is willing to adapt and i think in certain parts it has adapted i think it's it's reticent um so i think i, I think I, I wouldn't say it, it, it i think it's adapting slowly i think it has to adapt slowly um i think the unwillingness to adapt is because it questions the basic core principles of what it is to run a a gallery and represent artists in, in, in many degrees. It, 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 challenges, it challenges many of those core conditions and, and that's always difficult to do. But I do think it is changing and I do think it'll continue to change. Um, but it'll change because there's pressure and there's stress, particularly on the small gallery system and the, and the mid-sized gallery system. It, it's not going to change because they're dying to change like like all systems unfortunately uh they they, they tend to they, they they don't tend to bend and change form they tend to break and then get rebuilt um but um you know it's uh, it, it's always been an evolution and it will continue to be so so where do you see the art world heading in the next few years what are your predictions about the trajectory and what do you think is going to change I think, we I, to I, adapt to Trump. I think more participants in the art world. Uh, I think people are very interested in... Uh, I actually strangely think the idea of cryptocurrencies is very good for art because I, I think art is in, its, is in a way a cryptocurrency. It has a, each artist has a set of operating principles and guidelines like a, like a white paper that, that give you confidence to either buy the work or not. And I think as as people broadly get used to the conceptual mechanism of buying a currency that is based on a conceptual idea, I think, I think actually cryptocurrencies help the art market a lot. So I see a huge expansion in the interest in collecting art, in investing in art, in speculating in art, in, uh, in, 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 in using art as a decorative object. So I'm very optimistic um, I'm just very interested in, in helping to decentralize, uh, some of the aspects of, of 
this as it scales and when i say decentralize it i mean uh, decentralize its 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 singular um its singular uh, singularity in in being distributed within a very specific system um and uh, I, i'm interested in sort of helping establish a more distributed architecture of development production and distribution for for art okay perhaps just uh finally if there were anything that you could correct about what's been written about you any of the myths that have been spread around via the internet of which there have been probably quite a few I would I would, I would too many suggest what were the ones what what would you correct what are the things is this is this something I mean the term flipper drives me absolutely crazy because like I watched as the market went wild and I watched all of these good collectors I know selling their works at auction and and you can ask the heads of any of the auction houses if I consign work to auction for sale I have over the course of years sold a handful but I am not an active participant in selling works at auction I'm an active participant at buying works at auction and this word like the word flipper just drives me crazy I'm an art dealer my job is to sell art like every gallerist or dealer in the world and I've watched this like negative label of of me speculating and flipping art as some sort of satanic vice that I have that sort of ruptures the core values of the artists I manage and work with and 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 collect and I think it's just atrociously incorrect and and going through a media cycle which sort of has described me in these ways is really like reading fiction it's it's, it's you know, I hate to use, you know it's like it's it's sort of you as the individual as a person who does something and then reading about yourself in these mainstream magazines like the economist or the new york times and you're like i mean i'm happy for the press it's good for my brand and it distributes my identity but but i'm thinking this has got nothing to do with who i am my core belief system or what i do and uh and i think in time it will be corrected i think those who know me and those who've done business with me and those who are close to me are are equally mystified but the strange thing is i'm i'm also grateful for for sort of the negative press because it's it's been the the sort of the carrier pigeon for enabling me to get some of my my sort of you know more more radical ideas out there into the system and to promote myself so the 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 sort of acceptance of sort of negative identity is ironically something I'm 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 equally grateful for because at least it's it's press it's not PR as, as someone said once uh, there's no such thing as as good press that's public relations so one thing I'm grateful for is I I I'm I'm not in the public relations business I don't have a publicist but you know these kinds of conversations where people are actually willing to sit down for 30 minutes and listen to me talk drivel I think they can hopefully make their own minds up about what I do and how I do it and why I do it and and maybe see in what I do things that they can do themselves to uh 
you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to own this model. It's, I, I talk about it. I'm transparent about it. I'm happy if other people do it. It's really like a, a piece of IP that I want to put out into the world for people to, to manifest and copy themselves. Because I think if we can do it, uh, it'll be better for everything. It's not like in the slow food movement, the organic farmer in Oregon says, hey, you can't grow these tomatoes in Tuscany. It's the idea is to share the, the ideas, share the pitfalls, share the resources, so we can, we, we can all benefit. You know, my favorite economist, Carla Cipolla, talks about the four quadrants of stupidity, and he says that, you know, stupid people make stupid decisions for themselves and those around them, and they're an economic sinkhole. But intelligent people make decisions that are good for them and everyone around them. And I think, yeah, my key driver is, is let's. Let's live in a world where we're making, where we are all making intelligent decisions. In other words, helping each other while helping ourselves. And I think that's uh, that would be one of my my key things. Mm. Don't call me a flipper. Basically, it drives me crazy. Yeah, and that's uh, that's uh, it's very true that I think the art world is perhaps a little scared of of change. I mean, the traditions have been there since really since. You know, for as long as there's been an art market and art world, the traditions really haven't changed. They haven't really evolved that much, or at least in keeping with the we're, times. We're all scared of change. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I like history as well, but from like the 1850s to the to the to the beginning of the 20th century, we saw huge technological advances. The Industrial Revolution brought around huge advances in machinery and technology and military technology that were built up uh, during a multi-decade period of time. And then when World War I came along, those machines and that technology had never been used before. Uh, when World War I was unleashed and that technology was unleashed from man against man, its destructive power was, 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 was crazy. Um, so I think that, you know, we have to we have to sort of learn how to use this technology, this this sort of new technology in a more responsible way on each other, with each other. And there's been a certain lack of responsibility that, and it's not a governmental, it's an individual responsibility in how we use these very powerful tools in, in this new world. And we really need to come up with with our own individual practices and of, of how we of how, of how we use these sort of new forms of power that we have at our fingertips yeah absolutely okay well Stefan it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you so much for your time and I, I can't imagine that sitting here overlooking this beautiful view that uh, you'd be wanting to head back to LA to in too much of a of a hurry it's pretty nice here but I suppose you miss I don't miss anything. I, <laughs> I, I, I love it here, and I love LA. I love the whole thing. But, um, yeah, welcome to Blackies. And if you uh, want to keep up to date with uh, Stefan, you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook. And um, if you're in the uh, Blue Mountains area, head into his uh, bakery as well. Black Cockatoo, and you'll find the best bread around. In Lawson. In Lawson. And uh, population 2200. <laughs> population 2200. There you go. So, this is uh, Nicholas Forrest, and uh, you've been listening to a discussion with Stefan Simchevitz. <laughs>